0: Welcome to this week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm Pete Mazzetti. My guest this evening is Dr. Davis Banish from UConn Health. Dr. Banish, welcome. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on again. Hey, thanks for coming down. Thanks for coming down. It's been a while. What's new?
1: You know, uh, working through COVID, uh, taking it one step at a time, one day at a time. But uh,
0: yeah, yeah, we're working through it. There you go. So tell us a little bit about your background and how long you've been with UConn Health and exactly what you do.
1: Sure, so um, I'm an infectious disease doctor. Um, I take care of patients uh, with different infections, both in the hospital and in the office. Um, And my other role, I am um, the healthcare epidemiologist for UConn Health. Um, And in that role, I focus on our infection prevention related activities. um, Now, which has been almost uh, primarily dominated by COVID, but um, Mm -hmm. pertaining to other kinds of infections uh, in the hospital. Um, and focusing on prevention. Um, and then I'm, I'm also involved with our um, medical school and our uh, postgraduate educational programs at UConn Health as well. So a little a little bit of all those things. Very
0: busy. Very yeah, busy thanks. person, absolutely. So let's see, what do we want to talk about? We want to talk about COVID first or we want to talk about infectious diseases? Your uh, pick.
1: We can start with COVID. That uh, seems all to right. be on the forefront of everyone's mind.
0: You got it. So, what do we, where where should we start about COVID as far as where we are now compared to where we were last time you and I talked?
1: Well, I think gosh, we spoke um, several several months ago, maybe almost yeah. a year ago. So, I think you know, in a lot of ways, we're in a better position. Um, you know, we've got new we've got new challenges, but we've got more tools um, to fight COVID. So, you know, I think um, you know, most recently, going back to January, we've seen this um, Omicron variant circulate. Uh, you know, here in Connecticut and now throughout the world, and it seems to be highly contagious. You know, a lot of folks um, becoming infected. um, And, um, you know, fortunately, in terms of the consequences of the infection, uh, you know, we're not seeing um, the rate of hospitalizations uh, that um, we had seen during previous surges. And I'm trying to remember the last time we spoke, but I think, um, you know, it was during those earlier surges uh, where we saw a lot more hospitalizations um, and um, and that, that, you know, has its own concerns. But, you know, here in Connecticut, um, you know we are seeing a lot of um infection that's for sure you know our community transmission is still quite high um so important to be mindful of that and um you know we've got a lot of other things in we'll get to and we can talk about those as well in terms of uh prevention and treatment
0: well let's talk about prevention and treatment of covid where do you want where do you want to start
1: sure so you know i think you know um the vaccinations have really been um, been the primary means of prevention. You know, early on before vaccines, you know, we really focused in on a lot of um, the what we call non pharmaceutical interventions. So, you know, physical distancing, you know, masking um, uh, were, were really um, kind of all we had. Um, and there was always, you know, originally a big focus on, um, uh, you know, hand washing, which is always important, um, and, uh, you know, environmental cleaning, you know, those kinds of things. But you know, I think once the vaccines came out, you know that that was certainly a real game changer at least in terms of preventing uh the, the severe consequences of COVID. you know really hospitalizations mortalities um so that's been a real game changer you know we with the vaccines we've seen um you know tremendous benefit you know here in connecticut we're fortunate that um a very large proportion of our population has been vaccinated um, And i think that's why um, you know we even even during previous surges where other states saw higher rates of hospitalizations you know we haven't seen that as much here in connecticut um. So the vaccines are doing their job. You know, I think as as one might expect, you know, there's um, limitations to the vaccines. You know, they're not going to um, be 100% in terms of preventing all infections, including mild infections. But uh, they're still holding up quite well, uh, particularly for folks um, that got a booster dose um, to get that added layer of protection. So, and you know, I think that's really uh, tremendous. Um, and you know, we've got some other um, new preventive measures too, um, relatively new. So we've got now. Um, monoclonal antibodies that we use for prophylaxis in our immunocompromised patients um, who can't respond to the vaccine that's been really important so um, you know thinking about groups like uh, people that are on immunosuppressing medications um, and may not get that uh, immune response to a vaccine you know we have an alternative um, that can sort of supplement the vaccines to provide protection against infection so in terms of prevention i think we're making good progress um, and, um, you know, I think there's going to be even more to come um, in terms of the next generation of uh,
0: vaccinations uh, coming down the pike. What do you think the next generation of vaccinations coming down the pike are going to look like?
1: Um well, I think there's a, a few different ways that we're going to see new vaccines. <clears throat> um, you know, I think we're going to see vaccines that have been adapted to Omicron, so variant-specific vaccines. You know, the vaccines that are currently being used now are still the same ones that are based on the original um strain of the virus, you know, in right. turn to kind of the Wuhan strain um, and that spike protein. But, you know, as the virus changes, you know, we're, we need to be able to adapt our vaccines accordingly. So I think we're going to see some new vaccines that have um, sort of broader um, immune responses associated with them um, that may confer a higher level of protection. You know, one area that I'm actually um, uh, particularly excited about are um, uh, intranasal vaccines. There's been a lot of attention on these uh, recently. Um, in fact, a couple of um, uh, big news articles uh, that came out in the last week on the progress that's being made for intranasal vaccines, and I think that can be really impactful in terms of reducing milder infections. So, you know, with the with the current vaccines, we see they do protect against um, you know really severe infection. Um, they protect uh, well against uh, pneumonia, and that 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 process of infection but you know people still are subject to getting the upper respiratory um symptoms but a nasal vaccine um, may be able to block that even better you know prevent the virus from even attaching in the first place to the um the nasal mucosa um and that can be beneficial both in terms of preventing the milder infections but also maybe even preventing transmission um even more so i think i think that that that's something that's definitely uh, generating a lot of excitement in the scientific community
0: absolutely and obviously if you get the nasal version rather or the shot version, obviously it'll basically do the same thing as far as protection goes, correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, they'd probably be intended to use in concert with one another. So, um, you know, the injectable vaccines um, would be able to prevent you from like that systemic um, infection, Mm -hmm. uh, pneumonia, um, but uh, the nasal vaccines would offer that added protection in the nose. Um, So, you know, I I think, you know they they can be kind of complementary to one another, um, and I'm, I'm hopeful they'll become available um, relatively soon. We'll have yeah. to see.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Now, where now can we maybe talk about the different variances of the virus and exactly what that means? Because you see on the news the different variances, but they don't explain exactly what each variant is, and maybe a little bit more in detail.
1: Sure. So, um, you know, this virus and, you know, all coronaviruses, uh, they do mutate. Um, You know, coronaviruses tend to mutate more than a lot of other um, viruses that are out there. Um, So the changes that we see are not, um, you know, too surprising. So, you know, you may recall the original, um, uh, you know, Wuhan uh, variant and Alpha variant, those were the early, that's what we termed like the early variants um there were some subsequent um mutations that were that occurred um that led to um the next uh, sort of generation of variants um so you may recall the beta and moving into delta delta was a big one um in the summertime fall um that uh, led to a, a big surge of cases uh, particularly in certain parts of the country um and then uh, most recently in december january here in the us we saw this omicron variant and the thing that was Um, different about Omicron uh, was that it had so many mutations that really that that spike protein, which is the one that is important um, because uh, that's what the immune system kind of responds to, um, was very mutated um, and allowed for um, two things to happen. It allowed um, for um, the vaccine to become more infectious, um, so it spread quicker um, than the previous variants, but it also um, was able to evade some of the immunity from both prior infection and prior vaccines. Um, so, so that's what we saw with Omicron variant. And interestingly, over the last few months, you know, we've been seeing um, smaller changes to the Omicron variant. You know, we term these subvariants. Um, so you'll hear things like BA one, BA two, etc. These are these are subvariants. So smaller changes. Um, but changes that can um, still um, have impact in terms of um, some evasion from the immune system, from the vaccine-induced immunity um, to some degree, Um, and then that can result in infections. You know, fortunately, um, you know, in all the the cases we've seen so far, all the variants we've seen so far, there is still that um, protection against severe infection from vaccine that's still holding up, Um, but uh, it does allow for some um, escape from the immunity um, and, to to cause um, generally milder infections, so you know that, that's that's what we're seeing now. These different variants of Omicron, and I, I think um, you yeah, know we we have to be mindful of whether we see more of these like variants that look very similar to Omicron, or if we see a significant change that would be. Um, you know, much different and uh, more impactful. I think, you know, the other fortunate thing is with the Omicron variant, generally the cases overall seem to be milder. Um, and that may be uh, related to the nature of the, var- the variant, just um, c- causing milder infection, you know, less likely to cause lung infection, more likely to cause upper airway infection, um, and therefore milder disease. But, you know, we have to be attentive to pay close attention to these. And we've got now we've got very robust uh, surveillance systems that can track. New variants as they occur. Whereas going back like a year or two ago, we were really just in the early stages of even learning what it means to be a variant. So I think we've made a lot of progress, um, both in our understanding of them, but also being able to detect them more readily.
0: Absolutely. Now, as far as the virus goes from um, where we first began to where we are now, how does that stand?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, a lot of the mutations that we're seeing more, are more about making the virus. Um, uh, easier to transmit um, yes. so more contagious um fortunately they aren't necessarily making the virus more severe so the infection's more severe and you know that's been fortunate um but you know we'll have to see um you know we'll have to see what changes occur you know these coronaviruses you know like i mentioned they, they do mutate um, relatively readily um right. and they you know that doesn't necessarily mean that every mutation is going to lead to another spike of cases or um, you know more severe infection but definitely something that you'll know, we'll have to keep an eye on
0: absolutely absolutely and as far as let's talk about masks and obviously if you the different types of masks out there as far as protection wise goes
1: yeah so you know masking's been interesting Um, you know if you may recall like in the early phase of the pandemic where there was such a short supply of masks, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of homemade masks and uh, cloth masks. You know, now, fortunately, um, in terms of masks, we have much better supply, um, even for, like, the higher-quality masks. So we have, um, you know, surgical masks, um, and uh, now for, like, an added layer of protection, um, there's, uh, you may have heard the term um, KN95. Yep. Um, and uh, and then at the highest levels, the N95 respirator. Those are the kinds of um Respirators that we use in the hospital okay. um, when we're taking care of like severely ill uh, patients uh, with COVID, um, but the, even the CAN 95s do offer um, good protection. They're thicker, um, they have a higher level of filtration, and they also fit closer to the face. So those are both um, advantageous. So you know my general approach is you know at this point you know masks are are not um, there's you know we don't have mask mandates or requirements, right. um, but in some situations you know there's benefit to wearing a mask, um, particularly for people that um, that feel that they're more at risk, more vulnerable um and now that we have a readily ready supply of high quality masks um you know like the k ninety five, you know those um can really be um, beneficial in situations that um that people may feel are at, put them at higher risk um so you know if you definitely um, you know look out there try to find um you know a high quality mask you know i really um i'm sort of in the phase where i would like discourage the homemade the, the cotton masks you know the cloth yep. masks i think there's less of a role for that and now um you know more of a role for these higher quality masks when people feel like they're
0: needed and like you said they're a lot more readily the kn 95s are a lot more readily available now than they used to be when they' mm-hmm. when everything first started breaking out
1: yeah I think that's been um, that's been a plus you know the mask um, you know industry um, you know has really um, increased production and that's also not only increased the supply but brought the cost down a little bit you know um, the, the initial K-95s were, you know, their short supplies are very expensive. But now they're readily available, less expensive, and accessible to people that, you know, desire to wear them.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And obviously, if you don't know, if you're, go- if you're going out somewhere and you don't know, know where other members of the public have been, where I put a mask on.
1: Yeah, you know, I think during periods of um, high transmission like we're in right now, um, you know, if you're going to be in an indoor environment, particularly one where you're going to be in close contact with a lot of people and you're concerned about your risk, you know, those higher quality masks um, can offer um, a little bit more benefit um, in terms of reducing um, the risk for becoming infected.
0: Absolutely. Now, is there a difference between all the, the different types of vaccine or do they both do they basically do the same thing?
1: Oh, um there's a lot of different vaccines that are out there. You know, here in the United States, um, you know, the primary vaccines that we've been using have been are the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine. They're um, yeah. very, very much more similar than different. They both use the same kind of technology. They use this mRNA technology um, that helps uh, to generate the response to that spike protein um, to generate those protective immune cells um, to protect against infection. Um, you know, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, which um, you know, there's there's been kind of a shift away from that. Um, because of some concerns um, about uh, adverse effects in certain populations and maybe um, a lower efficacy compared to the mRNA vaccines, so um, that that uses a slightly different technology um, to be able to um, uh, generate uh, those uh, protective immune cells. Uh, but uh, throughout the world, there's a, there's a lot of other vaccines out there too. And you know, here in the U.S., you know, they haven't been FDA approved um, yet, uh, but uh, there's there's different um, te- techniques out there, uh, some of which have been. Uh, more effective than others, Um, you know, some of the vaccines that are used in other countries are more based on sort of the traditional vaccines that we use for like the flu using kind of inactivated virus as opposed to mRNA, Um, and, um, you know, those may have a role here in the U.S. too at some point in the future, you know, like I said, um, there's been a wide range of effectiveness, you know, some of the vaccines uh, have been very effective in other countries, some of them less so. Um, and you know, I think there's a possibility that in the future, you know I think we'll still continue to have these MRNA vaccines, but we may have an expanded um, kind of um, armamentarium of uh, vaccines available, which include um, vaccines that use other types of um, mechanisms to generate immune responses.
0: Now, as far as safety precautions at the hospital, what can people expect when they come see you as a patient?
1: Yeah, so in the hospital, um, you know we still um, maintain universal masking. Um, and that's true um you know yukon health but all the hospitals um right. and certainly here in connecticut have uh, universal masking so you you know when you come into the hospital um you know the expectation is that um all of our healthcare providers our patients um our staff our uh, students um, are all wearing masks um and that's and that's universal um with patient care um you know in some situations um you know you may encounter healthcare providers wearing additional protection like uh, face shields and mm-hmm. um, uh, respirators, um, and that, those are indicated in certain situations. But uh, you know at this point, um, you know, in healthcare, we're still universally masking. You know, I, I don't, there's a lot, a lot of people asking, well, how long are we gonna be doing this for? Is this gonna be indefinite? You know, I don't, I don't think we really know, uh, yeah. but I do think at least in um, the relatively near term, um, that's gonna continue. And, you know, quite frankly, there's probably um, a lot of benefit even outside of um, just COVID, um, thinking about, you know, infection risks um, that can occur in healthcare settings. Um, and uh, other respiratory viruses um, that, you know, probably in a healthcare environment, uh, the masks do provide um, good protection against uh, those spreading.
0: Absolutely, and obviously the the mask it will also basically add an extra layer of protection to you in case something something mm-hmm. happens.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, you know, they do offer a high level of protection. Remember in healthcare, you know, we. Um, we need to make people, uh, even our immunocompromised patients, um, uh, feel like they're able to readily access healthcare and feel comfortable with accessing healthcare. And that's, you know, we we sort of have to, be thinking about our most compromised patients when we're trying to set the standard for healthcare, which is maybe, you know, a little bit different than what, um, you know, the the retail store, you know, down the street would be thinking about. They'd be thinking about more kind of your average person, but we need to be thinking about our most vulnerable, our most immunocompromised um, individuals and what we can do to protect them in healthcare um, to keep them safe and also give them comfort with coming to see their clinicians.
0: Absolutely. And I'm, sure I'm sure people were a little bit scared about going to the doctor's mm-hmm. office for a regular physical or...
1: Oh, d- yeah, definitely. Check-up. I mean, we saw a lot of health care that was delayed, unfortunately, like routine care um, for, um, you know, routine healthcare care screenings. Um, and unfortunately, even um, taking care of, like, chronic medical conditions, people were too nervous to come to the hospital and kept right. delaying care. And, you know, that's going to have downstream consequences. And, um, you know, people are going to... Um, suffer because of that. So, you know, I think it's really important that we um, establish that, that the healthcare environment is a safe place that you can come and um, you know, that we, we want you to come to be able to receive the care that you need.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So what, what else we want to tell people about the the variants yeah, and but the I virus? Think, um, you know, it's the other piece that we didn't really get to touch on is treatment um, yeah.
1: options. So now, um, I think since we last spoke, we have um, much a much better treatment, um, much better treatment options okay. uh, for patients. Um, So, yeah, originally, you know, we had uh, the monoclonal antibodies, um, you know, those were um, developed um, pretty quickly, and um, they were used, uh, they're available to patients. Um, Unfortunately, with these mutations, with these different um, variants, um, a lot of them became less effective. Um, But now we have oral treatments, so Paxlovid um, is the main oral antiviral medication that we use now. Um, And it's um, been shown to be very effective um, in preventing hospitalizations um, and now it's increasingly available. Um, So, you know, my advice to anyone, um, you know, if you do test positive, particularly if you're if you have any other high risk medical conditions or if you're an older age, you know, certainly reach out to your, um, your clinician. Um, and ask if you're a candidate to get Paxlovid, because uh, now Paxlovid, you know, originally it was just in such short supply, we only stocked it in hospitals for like our our most vulnerable patients. But now it's readily available, and um, you know, there's many many pharmacies here in Connecticut that carry it um, in like retail pharmacies. So it's it's available, and um, for individuals who um, are eligible for it, it's, it's a good option.
0: And just like to, just like taking an aspirin. Um, maybe is not it, quite that it simple. Pill? Um, is it's it a, a pill? So it's
1: a five day course. It's a five day course of treatment. Um, the thing to be mindful of um, with uh, Paxlovid is uh, there's a lot of medication interactions to watch out for. So it interacts with a lot of other medications that people commonly take. Um, so that's something to be mindful of if it, that does come up. Um, you know, Definitely make sure that you um, whoever's prescribing it or discussing prescribing it knows all the other medications that you take to see if there's any interactions uh, to worry about. Because um, often those interactions can be addressed maybe by... Holding uh, the other medication, or changing the dose, um, or some adjustment, um, but it's important to be mindful of that because uh, those medication interactions with Paxlovid can be uh, quite significant. Oh, really? Yeah, um, you know, definitely something you got to keep an eye on. Um, you know, fortunately now, uh, you know, the pharmacists um, are very attuned to this, mm-hmm. um, and they, uh, you know, will uh, keep a close eye on things. But you know, definitely make sure if, if that's ever coming on the radar that, and you're, you're on medica- other medications, that someone does a detailed interaction check. To make sure there's nothing that to run
0: any problems with that. Absolutely, absolutely. So as far as the pandemic goes, I was t- I was talking to my mom last night and telling her about the show today. She was like, "I want you to ask the doctor when he thinks it's going to be over." Because a f- her and a friend of hers were talking, and she was like, "I don't think it's going to last that long. The virus isn't going to last that long." That was. At the beginning of the that was at the beginning of the pandemic and we're still we're still here <laughs> yeah
1: i mean i think um you know if, if covid saw us anything it's that uh, just be careful with any predictions that you make because uh, <laughs> the virus can definitely uh has thrown us for plenty of surprises right. you know i think um you know people ask what, what when is it going to be over i mm-hmm. think you know we need to think about you know what does over really mean so right. um you know it, you know does over mean that the virus is completely eradicated from earth or does over mean that we're not in like an emergency situation where we're having a lot of people get really sick and getting hospitalized and dying from covid um so you know there's there's a full spectrum by what it means to be kind of over you know i think fortunately right now um you know we don't find ourselves in like an emergency situation like we did um you know, certainly in 2020 um, and, uh, you know, different parts of 2021 where we're seeing, you know, hospitalization surge and people getting really sick and dying. You know, we're not that phase right now, and, and that's that's good. You know, I, I don't think we're going to get to a point where we're going to um, completely eradicate this virus from Earth. Um, you know, it just doesn't seem likely. There's too many... Um, too many uh, opportunities for the virus to find reservoirs, and um, you know now we have uh, we have animals that um, can harbor the virus, so that makes it even more challenging. Um, but I think the virus is now so widespread that I think it's unreasonable to expect it to be completely gone. You know, it may turn into um, something that um, is a little bit more predictable, um, maybe more seasonal, um, like other respiratory viruses. That you know, once things kind of settle in, you know, we'll see ups and downs, kind of like what we see with uh, flu and other kinds of viruses um but we'll see you know i think it, we don't really know where this is going to land um in terms of what the long term is going to look like and we've seen all these twists and turns along the way um and uh you know making it really difficult to predict um much uh with a lot of certainty uh but uh, you know we'll see you know i think uh we, we should be optimistic about um the increasing tools that we have to protect against the virus and to fight the virus um but uh you know we have to still be attentive to what the virus
0: does and how it changes absolutely Now, i didn't know animals could carry the virus
1: yeah there's a lot of species of animals that um that can carry the virus um you know things from like uh wild um uh, cats and deer and a lot i I think um last i heard there were about like 20 species of animals other than humans that can carry the virus and transmit to others so um and again now I, i don't think there's a lot of um human to animal transmission, um, you know, between species. Um, but knowing that there's animal reservoirs, I think does make it more likely that it's gonna be a virus that's gonna, you know, stick around, um, you know, even if we have, uh, you know, all the tools that we can to prevent, uh, you know, humans from uh, spreading it, uh, you know, knowing that there's animal reservoirs, I think is, is gonna be an added challenge. So we'll see. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's, that is something that uh, I think changed some of the thinking, you know, once we learned that there were animal reservoirs for the virus um, in terms of the ability to eradicate it completely.
0: Absolutely. Now, as far as when we watch the news at night, the governor, when the governor speaks, he they talk about the positivity rate in the state of Connecticut. How is that figured out? Can we maybe talk about that? So
1: the positivity rate, um, that is the percentage of tests that are positive um oh. you know there's a few and so there's important limitations to that so that is um the percentage of um of pcr uh, tests that are positive so um remember there's a few different types of tests out there there's our rapid home tests that um you know now originally were really hard to come by now are yeah. very readily available um and those you know don't get reported so um the data that we get is really just based on pcr tests and those are tests that are done in hospitals, in drive-through testing sites, um, some uh, clinics have them. Some some retail pharmacies have them, and and all those facilities are required to report that data to the state, and that's what we're tracking with the positivity rate, the percentage of those that are positive. But it doesn't capture all the home testing that's being done, which you know right now um, seems to be a lot. Um, right. You know, not that those tests are readily available. So you know, it's a helpful metric. You know, it's not the only metric. Um, you know, to keep an eye on. Um, and, yeah, we just got to realize that it's got some limitations um we tracking. I think more helpful to follow, like, on a, you know, week-to-week basis to see kind of what the trend is. Um, but, um, yeah, it's got limitations.
0: What are some of the other trends we have to follow up on just to make sure?
1: Yeah, I mean, hospitalizations are important. Um, you know, that helps us know... Uh, if um, the hospitals are uh, starting to uh, admit a lot of patients with COVID. Um, and that's helpful both in understanding the severity of infections, but also hospital capacity. Um, and uh, and that, that, you know, that was a big, really big issue back in 2020. Um, you know, There's also wastewater testing, and I may have heard of this, um, where we can monitor virus levels in the wastewater. Um, and Connecticut actually um, does this um, uh, much better than other states even. Um, and being able to detect kind of if there's a rise in wastewater virus, um, you know that's a rough indication that in the community or in the state we're seeing more virus uh, spreading. So that's another way, um, you know, that we can monitor uh, virus activity. Um, so, so I mean, those are two examples of um, things outside of that positivity rate, which has, which has really been a big focus um, to this point. But um, you know now is being recognized that it has some limitations
0: um, because of the type of testing that's being done now. I didn't realize that there there was a wastewater test that they could take from.
1: Yeah, yeah. so um, Connecticut has sites throughout the state where they sample wastewater um, in different um, counties, different communities, um, and they can actually um, track uh, how much virus is present. Um, and you know, the different states do this a little differently. You know, here in Connecticut, we've got a few sites. Um, actually, the New Haven area has the, the best surveillance. Um, they've got a very robust program um, that is um, in conjunction with Yale, uh, where they can really track. Um, Detailed information about the amount of virus that's in the wastewater, but even um, the types of, of uh, variants. Um, yeah. So, so we can we can get some detailed information from the wastewater, and you know that's a good way to track
0: things over time. Absolutely, I, and it sounds like it's a very worthwhile program.
1: It is. It is. I hope that it continues to be supported. You know, there's some concern that you know um, if funding for these programs starts to uh, decrease, that uh, we, won't, we won't have that. Um, option. Um, So I'm hopeful that uh, that those programs will uh, continue to be supported because I think they're
0: pretty valuable. Dr. Manish, would you mind sticking around for your lender segment? Sure, sure. All right, we'll be right back.
2: Roofing scams become more common this time of year. Better Business Bureau Scam Tracker is receiving reports of shady, free roof inspections. Homeowners should be on the lookout for these cons. The person may claim that their company is working on a neighbor's home and is offering inspections to those living nearby. If they don't find enough wear and tear to merit a whole new roof, they may fabricate it by tearing off shingles to mimic wind damage, or they may simply show you pictures of someone else's damaged roof. Beware of unsolicited offers, especially after a storm. Get your insurance company to inspect your roof to verify the need for repairs or replacements. Ask for references and check out their work yourself. There are 1200 BBB accredited roofers in Connecticut. Find the right one by going to BBB.org to look at a company's business rating. There you can check for a pattern of complaints and read reviews and also share your experiences by writing a review yourself to help others in their search.
0: Welcome back to this week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm Pete Mazzetti sitting here with Dr. David Banish from Yukon Health. Dr. Banish, welcome back. Thanks, for, uh, be back. thanks for Thanks for sticking around. So Dr. Banish, we talked about the virus in the first segment, I was maybe we. Thinking we can ta- open this segment talking about. I actually saw you on the news the other day, and we were talking about. you we were talking about ticks and other viruses.
1: Yeah. So um, there's been a lot of attention, um, as there typically is around this time of year, um, on tick-borne infections here in Connecticut. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, we have a very high uh, tick population um, in Connecticut, particularly in certain regions of Connecticut. Right. Um, and uh, you know, every year. Um, you know, we see um, folks that uh, get uh, tick infections, and uh, there's a few different types of infections that can be associated with these ticks. You know, Lyme disease is the one that everyone talks about; um, it's certainly the most common, um, gets the most attention. Uh, but there's some other ones as well that can be uh, pretty severe, um, and in uh, some people can cause, um, you know, hospitalizations. And the one that's gotten the most recent attention is this Powassan virus. Um, so this is a virus that can be spread by ticks. You know, the other um, organisms like uh, Lyme disease and um, organisms like Babesia and um, uh, Anaplasma, you know, those are more like uh, bacteria and and, uh, parasites. But some viruses, uh, particularly this Blossom virus, um, has now come on the radar. Um, as a another tick infection you know fortunately that one um is much less common than uh, the other the other three more common infections uh, but it can be quite severe I and mean, there was a first case of powassan virus um this year reported um a few weeks back that got a lot of attention
0: now as far as prevention of ticks what can you do to prevent
1: yeah yeah i mean tick prevention is really critical here in connecticut so um you know a few of the key take-homes um you know before you go out you know know where you're going if you're going to be going into a wooded area uh, particularly in the summer and fall where we see um, tick uh, infections occur most frequently um you know things to be thinking about uh you know trying to cover up your skin as much as you can so long pants um and uh, long sleeves if you're going to be out in the woods in the brush um tick repellent also um really important Uh, so there's a lot of um uh, really effective uh, tick um, repellents out there. You know, the CDC actually has like a really detailed website that um, describes all the different um, sort of approved um, tick repellents. So uh, spraying down with tick uh, repellent um, is a, is an important measure. And then um, other things to be thinking about when you come out of the woods, get back, um, come back home, you know, going inside, taking off your clothes, laundering them um, on a high heat, and then uh, taking a shower um, and doing a tick check, you know, all can be really important. If you do identify a tick, um, you know, taking it off quickly, can help uh, reduce the chance that that tick's gonna lead to an infection. Um, so, it definitely measures that people should be thinking about in the uh, summer and fall months uh, where we see these kinds of infections occur here in Connecticut.
0: Absolutely. And, and obviously, if you want more information on what tick repellents to use, go to the website and we can. It's yeah, like CDC like, has a
1: great website. Um, with, uh, there's a full list of the different products that are available, things oh, to look but... for. Um, and. Um, it, they give you guidance on tick prevention so i think that's a great place to start um and uh you know look think about the strategies that you're going to be using particularly if you're going to be outdoors um in a wooded environment where these ticks tend to reside
0: exactly especially now because the weather's getting warmer and people are outside a lot more and
1: absolutely you don't yeah have... um, you know we're seeing a lot of tick infections uh you know there were i, I think over the last couple of years um you know we've seen an increase um, you know here uh, in connecticut of uh, some of these infections um, and, uh, yeah, important to have them on the radar. And then, you know, certainly, uh, you know, as uh, clinicians, when we see people coming in um, in the summer months here in Connecticut, you know, and they have symptoms that might be related to a tick infection, we got to be thinking about that uh, when we're doing our assessments, and that will help guide decisions about testing and treatment uh, for those patients.
0: Now, what are some of the symptoms for ticks, tick infections? So uh, they can vary. So for, um, for
1: Lyme disease, um, you know, the classic is that bullseye rash um, that, uh, is, um, you know very uh sort of telltale for lyme disease um for some of these other infections like anaplasma obesia sometimes um the uh, people will come in with flu-like symptoms so fevers achiness joint pains um you know sometimes uh excessive fatigue um sort of like uh, you're getting the flu um, but uh, we don't really see—we uh, generally don't see flu in the summer months. So if someone came in with like uh, flu-like symptoms in the summer uh, or in the fall, when we don't really see flu spread, um, you know, tick infections would be on the radar. Uh, particularly things like Babesia and Anaplasma, it um, would be things to be thinking about. So uh, yeah, I mean, if you're not feeling well, um, yeah, particularly if you uh, are worried that you had some exposure, you were outdoors recently, um, you know, certainly um, you know tick-borne infection needs to be on the radar when trying to think about uh, what would be going on
0: absolutely absolutely and as far as you mentioned flu let's is it is it how important do you think it is to go get your flu shot
1: yeah you know flu has been really interesting uh this year so you know typically when we think about flu season we think mostly in um you know the late fall uh, winter and winter months but um for reasons that i think we still don't quite understand but certainly uh you know related to covid and Things surrounding COVID, uh, we're seeing flu um, occur later. Um, so even you know as recently as the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing uh, flu activity um, at a pretty high level uh, here in Connecticut. So um, you know the vaccines are still effective. They're still out there. And I think in um, you know, the last couple of years, there's been so much attention on COVID vaccines that people are maybe not thinking about flu vaccines and. Uh, you know, the um, vaccine uptake um, in the last couple of years for flu vaccine has been lower um, than what we'd seen in previous years. So uh, and I think it's still important um, to be thinking about, you know, we we typically um, like stop offering from flu vaccines around, you know, April, May, uh, but this year we've extended that because we're still seeing flu activity. So, um, you yeah, know, still a way to protect yourself um, against the uh, flu. And, um, you know, we're, they're still pretty readily available.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And sounds to me like they're pretty effective as well.
1: Yeah, um, you know, it's variable year to year. Um, you know, this year, um, it's a little difficult to um, get a full assessment because, like I said, we didn't see a lot of flu activity um, in the winter months. So um, a little difficult to know exactly how uh, how well that flu vaccine matched the circulating flu strains. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think there still is benefit and, um, you know, the common um, strains of flu that we're seeing are, are included in the vaccine. So, um, you know, I think there's definitely, uh, you know, some impetus to go and get, go ahead and get that flu vaccine. Um, if the yet. But, you know, what the flu season is going to look like in the future, um, you know, is now becoming a question mark. You know, are we going to see differences in terms of the seasonality of the flu um, that's been impacted by COVID? Um, maybe, but uh, I think I don't quite have an answer to that yet.
0: Now, can you get the flu vaccine and your COVID shot in the same day or now? Flu but vaccine yes. and um, one arm, So that, that's, one that's important.
1: So originally when the COVID vaccines came out, they recommended like a time interval between getting the COVID vaccine and other vaccines. But yeah. um, now there's been more data that shows that um, that's not necessary. Um, and uh, you can get... Uh, both of them uh, on the same deck. Um Yeah, I think the general recommendation is to get them in different arms, um, but uh, you know, the timing um, interval that's needed, like a gap isn't there. And I think one other thing that's interesting about vaccines is now there's a couple of vaccines and trials that are actually combined flu and um, COVID vaccines. Um, really? I know some of the companies are working on that. Um, so maybe that'll be something to, uh, that we'll be looking at in the future where you can get a vaccine that's protected against both.
0: Like a combination shot. Exactly. That, that, would, be, that would be a good thing. We'll see. I think uh, you know, there's some optimism about that. No, absolutely, absolutely. So what else we want to talk about? Infectious diseases and...
1: Yeah, gosh, I mean, I think, um, you know, flu and tick-borne infections and uh, COVID are really uh, the predominant, um, you know, things that are on everyone's mind. Um, on. You know, I think, um, you know, we still, uh, you know, are seeing um, uh, the infections that we used to see in the hospital and fortunately made a lot of progress in preventing a lot of those infections. Um we're a lot better at preventing hospital acquired infections now than we were a couple decades ago. So and that's a big part of what I work on as well. Um the strategies that we have in the hospital to prevent those kinds of um, infections. But uh yeah, I think we're making good progress um in that area and um you know we just gotta be mindful. You know, we hear about uh, these uh, rare infections. Um, you may have heard of it. There was an outbreak of uh, bird flu um, here in Connecticut. Uh, fortunately, it didn't affect humans, um, but it um, only affected um, a few uh, a few areas of, like uh, poultry farms. Um, but you know, it's something that we always got to keep an eye, lens out for, and uh, you know, we're we're always um, uh, to some degree concerned about new viruses emerging and. Um, particularly viruses uh, that could possibly spread between animals and humans. And so it's something you know, we always have to keep an eye out for. And um, you know, if uh, something does come up, we got to really uh, be thinking about it.
0: Absolutely. Now let's talk about, let's talk about the bird flu. What, what is it and what causes it? Yeah, so it's
1: a type of um, influenza. So just okay. like the human uh, flu strains, um, there are strains that circulate among other species, including birds. Um, and uh, they can be very, um, they can spread very easily between birds. Um,
0: okay.
1: This is something that seemed pretty common uh, year to year um, in, in poultry farms throughout the world. Um, you know, fortunately, we don't see them very often here in the United States. Um, but when they do occur, um, they can be quite uh, significant in terms of um, affecting um, bird farms and uh, poultry farms. Um, and then you know like I said what we really need to look for is if there's any potential for spread from animals to humans um, and I, th- I think that we hear about like these sporadic cases of that happening um, on an individual basis like a poultry farmer becoming infected that yeah. um, fortunately that that seems to be quite rare um, so far but um, you know something we always have to be mindful of if we do see that um, and then worry that a, a through strain could potentially spread. Um, but, uh, you know, except uh, today, to date, um, you know, we haven't been seeing that. But, uh, you know, we got to be on the lookout for these new viruses and see if anything uh, is going to raise the concern um, on a broader uh, public health level.
0: Now, what happens if you are a human and you come in contact with some, some form of poultry or some sort of animal that Yeah, well, I
1: think the first step, um, you know, the common things being common, you know, the things we worry about with poultry are more uh, bacterial infections like salmonella. Um, so yep. that that is far away, far more common. So if you're going to be handling poultry, um, you know, thinking about bacterial infections like salmonella should probably be the main focus. And um, you know, the best way to protect yourself from that is um, twofold: by washing your hands after touching poultry. You, yep. you can, if you with good hand washing, you can um, eliminate the salmonella bacteria from the hands. And then when it comes to like cooking foods, um, the poultry, uh, making sure that your poultry is well cooked um, to kill any salmonella bacteria. So so that's really the most important
0: um, thing we yeah. think about when
1: we're talking about poultry. You know, these other viruses. Um, again, uh, very rare, um, but uh, more from like uh, surveillance and public health level, we have to be on the lookout for these, but uh, I think uh, the main message for someone handling poultry or working on a poultry farm. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of um, folks have poultry farms at their homes, um, you mm-hmm. know, usually so yeah, on smaller scales. Um, yeah, just making sure that, uh, you know, if you're gonna be out with the, um, with the poultry, uh, that you really wash your hands well um, before you go in um, and uh, touch food or touch uh, other people. Exactly. Um, and hand washing is really the most critical piece.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And how about we circle back and talk about the virus? Okay. okay. Uh,
1: the uh, av- uh, avian poultry uh, sure. influenza, is saying Sure. Oh yeah, I mean like um, you know that uh, very rare. Like there've been uh, only a, a handful of cases occurring uh, sporadically throughout the world. So I, I wouldn't necessarily focus on that. Um, okay. You know there's uh, you know other viruses. that you know we talked about COVID um, spreading between animals in the yep. and humans. You know that's something that you know we always have to be on the lookout for. Um, you know, if we ever see that uh, someone who had unusual animal contact um, develops a viral infection that we can't explain, um, then uh, you know thinking about uh, those um, more exotic kinds of uh, viruses um, are on the radar. But for the general public, um, you know, the risk of that is quite low. Um, So uh, not necessarily something that you would need to be uh, mindful of, you know, really. And I can't stress the hand washing enough. Um, You know, we see people come in with really nasty salmonella um, infections um, uh, who work on poultry farms. um, And, uh, you know, I think uh, these are largely preventable with good uh, hand hygiene.
0: Right. Absolutely. Now, as far as the besides hand washing, how how useful is hand sanitizer, and is there, I don't kind of so, Yeah, so,
1: yeah, hand sanitizer um, for almost all kinds of um, viruses and uh, bacteria infections um, is uh, just as effective as um, soap and water hand hygiene. And So, you know, I think if you're gonna be um, in a situation where you're coming in contact with uh, a surface that a lot of people are touching, you're concerned that there might be um, some, uh, you know, bacteria on there or viruses or something, anything like that, um, you know, good um, you know, hand washing with soap uh, with uh, hand sanitizer can be effective. Um, and, uh, you know, something to be mindful of. Uh, you know, we see other kinds of um, uh, viral intestinal infections. Um, yeah. So, norovirus is a big one. Um, you know, we hear about outbreaks of that in uh, cruise ships, on, uh, in uh, healthcare facilities, in uh, daycares. We see um, diarrhea-related outbreaks. Um, and uh, you know, for those, all of those, really hand washing um, is uh, quite effective. Um, and I think uh, you know, if you're going to be in an environment where uh, those kinds of um, infections can occur, you know, re- really being attentive to good hand washing and um, using hand sanitizer um, uh, when it's available can be effective. You know, some of the some of the, some of these infections, um, you know, hand washing with soap and water can be a little bit more effective um, for right. some of these viruses. Um, but uh, for most. Uh, Infections, um, you know, the hand sanitizer can be quite effective, and you know, encourage people to use it if they're concerned.
0: Absolutely, and then obviously, all these hand hand sanitizers work the same way, and especially like the especially out there. And now they have the chlor the Clorox wipes; those probably work too for mm-hmm. to kill bacteria. Yeah, they're
1: good. They're a good disinfection. Um, you know, I think the key thing is if you're going to be touching um, a surface that a lot of other people touch. Yeah, I mean, that's what you want to be thinking about: um, hand hygiene and uh, disinfecting. Um, so, you know, for most surfaces, that's not an issue, but there's a lot, if you think about it in our day-to-day lives, we touch a lot of things that a lot of other people touch, and uh, you know, a little bit of hand sanitizer, uh, washing off your hands afterwards can, uh, can actually be uh, quite a benefit.
0: Absolutely, and hand sanitizer is now readily available, I remember, during the start of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was in shortage.
1: Uh, <laughs> you you know, couldn't find it. Um, the disinfectant wipes, the hand sanitizer, all cleaning products, I remember the stores were out of them. Yeah, I know. Uh, That was uh, quite remarkable. Uh, But yeah, fortunately now, um, the manufacturing is really uh, ramped up accordingly, and uh, all those products should be uh, very readily available.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And as far as the coronavirus goes, as far as where, when we first started back in the first stages of it to where we are now, how are we looking?
1: well i think we've made a lot of progress you know it's it's still it's still around and you know i think uh you know there's some fatigue associated with that you know people are frustrated a lot of people um a couple years ago were thinking that this was just gonna be our temporary thing you know we were gonna get through it after a few weeks a few months and gosh we're like you know now years later and still um talking about it Uh, But, uh, you know, I think in terms of perspective, you know, I think really important that people keep that lens on that, um, you know, in terms of how how people are doing when they become infected, um, we're not seeing hospitalizations um, and mortality anywhere near where we saw before. We're seeing a lot of people um, become infected, you know, these variants are very um, contagious, very uh, infectious. Um, But uh, the overwhelming overwhelming, um, population, particularly those who have been vaccinated, really have milder um, symptoms, and that's really important. Uh, you know, we have more tools. We have um, vaccines that are now readily available. We've got yeah. more vaccines coming that are going to be um, sort of the next generation and better vaccines. And I think there's a lot of reason for optimism for that. Um, and we've got more treatments coming too. Um, you know, now we have uh, some very effective treatments for people in the hospital. And um, you know, now we have uh, oral um, antivirals that have good data behind them. So, you know, I, th- I think we've made a lot of progress over the last couple of years. You know, there's definitely fatigue out there, and I understand that um yeah we're all feeling that but um know, i think i think we have a lot to um reflect on in a good light um and a lot that's going to help us um in the future um building upon these new technologies new medications new uh vaccinations um that are going to help us not just for covid but for all infections um in the future so i think there's reason for optimism and you know I'd, even despite all the fatigue that everyone's having you know i would encourage that optimism going absolutely. absolutely
0: now as far as the other options of the we talked in the we talked in the earlier in the segment about the oral ver, version of the medication for to prevent the virus can we maybe talk about that
1: yeah so um you know we've got uh, these oral medications uh, Paxlovid is the main one that we use for treatment um uh-huh. it's an antiviral it, it helps stop the virus from um, from reproducing um, and it has been shown to be effective in re- preventing uh, more severe infections and hospitalization. So, you know, th- I think it's really important. You know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I really want to emphasize that, um, you know, if you do um, uh, develop COVID um, and test positive, you know, reaching out to your clinician to see if your uh, Paxlovid's is appropriate. You know, I think um, you know there's some awareness in the community, but I think there's a lot of people that aren't aware of this treatment option um, and that it's readily available. Um, you know, certainly way different than we were. You know many months ago when we were just had monoclonals and they were in very short supply and only for like very small um, uh, percentage of the population. But now these oral antivirals are much more readily available. So have that discussion, um, you know, with your uh, clinician to see if they're appropriate for you if uh, if you do uh, develop a COVID infection.
0: Absolutely. Now, as far as how important do you think the testing sites are as compared to the home tests?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm glad we were talking about that. So, um, you know, testing, so there's a couple of different tests that are out there. We've got our rapid tests, um, which are antigen tests. Um, They're very effective. Um, They perform very well with with, uh, the Omicron variant that we're seeing now. Um, You know a few things to think about. They are dependent on getting a good sample, so really important that you actually uh, follow the instructions, get a good sample. Um, But and they're limited too. They're not as um, as sensitive at picking up virus as the PCR tests, which are now the main ones that are being offered at healthcare facilities. So those those tests are a little bit more sensitive. The um, antigen tests are less sensitive but quicker. Um, So if you if you get a positive antigen test, um, you know that that you're done. I think that means that you 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 don't need to do additional testing. you know, you, you, that's a positive test and you proceed accordingly in terms of isolating and getting treatment. Um, if you have a negative one um, and you're, you're having symptoms that might be from COVID, um, I would encourage people to uh, not stop there and either get a follow-up uh, PCR test or get do a second um, antigen test, uh, you know, usually like 12, 24 hours later. Um, and if, if you get two negative ones, that provides um, a little bit more reassurance that it's not uh, COVID. Um, because, the, like I said, the sensitivity of those tests is not as high as the PCR tests. So just bear that in mind um, when, you're, uh, when, you're, when you're doing home tests.
0: Now, obviously, if you, the, it's probably a lot easier to go get the PCR test rather than taking the home test, because if you do, if you do it wrong, you got to do it over again.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, the PCR tests, um, yeah, I mean, those are usually done by, like, a medical professional, so yep. the sampling is more reliable. Um, with those and the test itself was more sensitive and now they're they're pretty readily available you know you may remember we had like these wide huge testing sites Mm -hmm. uh, kind of moving away from that um with like these big drive-through testing sites although most um healthcare facilities now have a drive-through testing site um and have um, pcr testing available i remember in uh, december january there were like huge lines and it was uh really difficult to get a test um you know fortunately um we don't have that uh shortage Uh, right now um, with getting tested. So, you know, those are readily available, um, you know, through drive through testing sites throughout the state. And, um, you know, if if people um, are concerned, um, you know, that's a good option.
0: Now, do you guys have testing sites up where, up at your facility? We do, yeah, at UConn we have a drive through testing
1: site um, that operates, um, you know, for uh, many hours during the day, um, including weekends. Um, and uh, if you're looking to get a drive-through testing site, um, test at UConn, for instance, you can go online, and set it up um, through, uh, there's, we have an ordering process that uh, there's a the website kind of walks you through. Yep. Um, and we also have a phone number where you can call and schedule a test. And, and that's, pretty, that's pretty much true for all the major like healthcare institutions throughout the state. Um, if, if you want to get a test there, um, you can jump on their website and follow the instructions to set that up. And um, like I said, they're pretty readily available now. Um, you know, we don't see like the long lines um, that we had seen back in uh, December, January, where there was such a short supply. Um, so, you know, I would uh, if, if you're concerned um, that uh, you're having symptoms or you had a high-risk exposure, uh, you know, those are available um, to uh, to go testing.
0: And usually if you get tested, the results come back in, what, 24 to
1: 48 hours? Yeah, no, we've seen shorter turnaround times. So, okay. th- you know, a year or two ago, that's what we were looking at, um, turnaround time um, for the drive-through test was, was long, um, you know, 24 yeah. to 48 hours. And, you know, that is unfortunately you know less helpful um, the longer you wait um you know the less uh, less uh, helpful it is in terms of getting early treatment and uh you know maintaining uh, like isolation from other people um so so i think most facilities now have shortened that quite a bit um you know i, I don't like to give an exact uh, turnaround right. time because it exactly. varies from to day time to time um at facilities but generally less than 24 hours um you know seems to be uh, the norm um and some some even like less than 12 hours uh, for turnaround time so uh so that's good
0: I know. I I actually had surgery. I had cataract surgery back in December, and I had to go for a COVID test. And we went on a Friday afternoon. My results were in to me at like three a.m. the next morning.
1: Oh, okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think. Uh... Yeah, I mean that, that kind of turnaround time is good. I mean, you may remember like that, uh, you know, in the early phase, it would take days yeah. to come back, and you know, some some places are turning around testing in like a week, and at that point, it's just not not very helpful. But uh, yeah, uh, we're seeing shorter turnaround times. So, you know, not quite at the level of like a, like a home test, point of care, um, but uh, that's still pretty good. Yeah, so, no. I think yeah. we've made a lot of progress, and a lot of that is you know improvements in our just processes with being able to process the tests and. Um, you know uh kind of streamline the whole process uh, which i think is really good um not just for COVID, but even for like other types of testing now we have better processes in place to turn around testing uh quicker
0: now once that once they once they do the test to process it do they send it out to a lab or do they do it it depends it
1: um so um you know a lot of them do send it to their um, lab at their facilities so for mm-hmm. instance at our doctor site. Um, at UConn, um, you, know, you'll, you would get the swab taken and they would send it up to our uh, microbiology lab um, up at the main hospital where we run all of our tests. And um, you know, other hospitals uh, do it a little differently. They may have like a central lab for like yep. all of their different sites um, to send specimens to. Um, but uh, yeah, generally those types of PCR tests are run out of like a big hospital lab. You know, and even like the private labs like Quest, um, yep. you know, run them as well.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. With everybody doing doing them, they probably did tests, did test results 24 hours a day.
1: Probably. Yeah, oh, they've got huge um, testing operations, um, and uh, you know they've made a lot of progress too with getting quicker turnaround times. I remember, Quest, um, you know, in other private labs uh, at the early earlier phase, um, just took a lot longer
0: um, to get test results, but they've they've really improved that quite a bit. Absolutely. Well, Dr. David Banish from UConn Health, are about to run out of time, so hopefully we'll have you on again soon. That'd be great. great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a lot. On behalf of David Banish, I'm Pete Mazzetti. Thanks. Good night. And we'll see you next time.